I wasn't anticipating any of this to occur. I want to thank you for being this vulnerable and being this honest. People do not have to be this honest. They don't. I don't know anything else to say to offer you in this moment because it's just a real life moment. What are you thinking? What are you feeling right now? Hey, we are in another episode of the Living Out Loud discussion series. And today we are talking about necessary reflections after stepping down from a long time leadership role. I am Charmaine Nuts, a relational DI expert. If you are new here, we are unpacking real life scenarios and issues that come up in our interactions with each other in professional settings or in the places where we feel like we need to be buttoned up. The goal of every single episode is to reveal the layers and the nuances in our everyday interactions so that we can learn from them as a community that cares about diversity, equity, and inclusion. As always, the views, opinions, the things that I share in this series, they are opinions of my own. They are not representative of agencies by which I am employed or contracted by. With me, I have Sharon Chan Wetero. Thank you for joining today. Thank you, Charmaine. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes. So Sharon and I were talking and I was just reflecting on how I came to know her and the capacities that we've been able to work together. And a part of me feels very connected to you, like I've known you for a, a long time. And then when I reflect back, I realize it hasn't been that long. And I think it's because of how you show up in spaces and the impact that I've seen you have on so many people. So we worked together at Cal State Dominguez Hills and I was adjunct faculty there. And because of you, I was actually brought on board. We have a mutual colleague that put us in touch and it just moves so fast. And I don't even know if you know this, but that was one of my goals to be able to teach. And I really wanted to come back to Dominguez. You were instrumental in doing that. I never even told you that. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome, Charmaine. We are so yeah. fortunate to have had you. Thank you. You've had decades of experience in various capacities. Your impact is here in California and over in Ohio. And you also shared your story and people that were important to you and how you grew as a professional and like a spiritual piece. And would you mind just sharing any part of who you are in your journey? Thanks, Charmaine. I know there's a lot to say because I've been in the social work field now for 30 years post MSW. And so there's been a lot of different journeys I've been on as a direct practitioner I am licensed clinical social worker in California. I'm also a licensed independent social worker in Ohio. I've just been so lucky in my life to have been working direct practice, working really started in residential treatment in Hollywood with kids in LA County's DCFS, Department of Children and Family Services, Child Welfare System. And then later in one of my many jobs, I've, I've had well over 10, coming back as a trainer and a consultant through UCLA to work with new hires for LA County DCFS. And I've had an opportunity to coordinate programs and uh, be over budgets 
to help empower upcoming BSW and MSW students to work in child welfare. So I've been in higher education for over 24 years. And between UCLA, Fresno State, Ohio State College of Social Work, and also at Dominguez, where I closed my time with higher ed for 10 years there and did a lot of training all over the place to um, help line staff, supervisors, administrators look at different aspects related to, in the old days, we called it cultural competence yeah. and, and oppression. And I've had opportunities to also even develop, like in Ohio, some modules related to the Asian Pacific Islander communities and also the Latinx communities. Um, I'm currently uh, working for a healthcare plan, looking at navigation of systems and helping mm -hmm. to connect people to resources or to something that would help them get to the next place they want to be. I am just been really blessed to have had these opportunities. I am a mother. I have two kids and one's in college and one's in high school. I'm married. I also, I think my values and my belief system, which is rooted in Christianity, which I wasn't raised in, but I became a Christian when I was a teenager. And so that has also impacted some of the opportunities that came my way, as well as impacted how I want to look at students and view students or how I want to treat people. Yeah, you have a ton of experience and I thank you for sharing the things that fill you and your values. I absolutely love that. And I'd like to actually for a moment talk about what I don't think we talk about enough in the field is there are a lot of experiences that exist in organizations that also exist in higher education. Very, very similar dynamics. While different industries, and I think they have their own problems and greatness about them, there's a lot of similar dynamics. And as you were sharing your journey privately with me, I was really hearing how your journey can apply to not just people who are familiar with higher ed, also in spaces outside of. I'm really looking forward to hearing your perspective. That said, you've had a lot of leadership roles and you've stepped down since then. And you were telling me about these things that you were reflecting on and these aha moments, I felt like this needed to be captured. There's so much in your reflection that I think could help current leaders, leaders in any capacity. I think it'd be really fascinating for staff and even students to hear about this reflection. That's where we're going to go today. Let's start with like, what told you, hey, I need to reflect on this. And what has that been like for you? I think change necessitates reflection and sometimes not out of your own will. And I think when moving from a position that I was very comfortable in for 10 years at Dominguez and many years prior at different places, there's a certain skill set you develop. You're still using, you know, as a social worker, solid assessment skills, and that's across the board. And so I think because things in my last position were not aligning with my values, I felt I needed to make a change, even though I wasn't sure what I was quite getting myself into. I think when you're in higher education, you have sort of a trajectory in your mind that's going to happen to you. 
And I did. I had, uh, okay, maybe 60. That 60 seems to be this year you sort of retire from higher ed, but it, it depends, <laughs> right? How much service credit you have and all that. But that was sort of what was in my mind. So to have to leave that early was not something I expected. And so when you're mm. in the process of thinking about making a change and a move, you have to really think very deeply about why you're doing it. So it does require this need for reflection and talking with other people and reflecting on their reflections and weighing the pros and cons. Yes. So you, and again, share as you feel comfortable and safe to share. You just, again, privately had, were telling me about so many of your aha moments. I'm curious to know, were, were there any things that surprised you as you were doing this reflection? Were there any things that just felt, oh, I wish this or, oh, this really got me good? Yeah, I think, I think when how people like to think about, like when they contemplate making a job change and you know how the grass is always greener on the other side. So there's a little bit of like excitement that happens when you consider something different and new possibilities. And so I think I was definitely experiencing that piece of, oh, maybe some of the things that is not working out for me here in this position, I can now have that in this other place. And so that was exciting to me um, because I was trying to think about work-life balance more. And it's something that it was gnawing at me for a while. And this is something also when you're an educator, you preach a lot to the choir or you preach a lot to students about how you want them to develop as practitioners and do more than survive in social work, but to thrive in social work. And mm-hmm. so you start realizing, oh, I need to take some of this advice for myself. And when I finally made that decisional balance or whatever we say in motivational interviewing to go to the other side and make that change, there's also that hope and optimism, but then there's also the scare, the fear that goes with making a change. And so I think because I was moving into a position that I was never really intending to go to, it wasn't on my radar But again, I was thinking about the opportunity that was presenting to myself that may have some value to or may uphold one of these other values I have, which is the work-life balance. I had to really consider that very much. And so I had to walk into a position that I really, that was going to have a lot of challenges for me because I hadn't been in direct practice for over 24 years. And I don't know if it's just unsaid or in social work, people tend to go direct practice and then they just end up getting more macro in the end. You know, they move into supervisor, administrator, consultant positions, but they, unless they do a private practice, they don't usually return to like care management, case management. There's this hierarchy around that. And so I definitely had to really think about, okay, who am I? What do I really like in the work that I do? And in my entire career, when I think about the common theme of the skill that I have, that I do well in, and that is helping people feel seen, helping people feel heard, and helping them have a sense of like hope for the next step. And in that coordination of care or of placements or whatever that is, it's all related to each other. And so I really was thinking about that a lot. 
about that was really what was attractive for me for this new position that I'm in. Yeah, and I I don't see it as a, a negative. Some people are like, oh, you're doing direct practice again, as opposed to living the high life in higher education. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which yeah, well, a lot of myth to that. <laughs> you're talking about something. I'm gonna lift it up a little bit more, and it is this societal value placed on moving up a hierarchy of positions. You start at the bottom. The bottom is direct serve. This is what society tells us and the things they value and the money and and all of that stuff reinforces you are supposed to want to move up in position level, in money, in significance and all of that. When you were talking about how you imagined your life and then at 60 and what it would look like. I was seeing this envisioning of a trajectory. I had it myself. And this is honestly why I was making the connection. As you were talking, I remember feeling the same way. I felt the same way. I also felt like I felt I had an awareness of it. And I kept valuing this idea of moving up. And I also remember that I was so committed to that that it contributed to one of the most painful professional experiences I ever had. I was trying to move up in a place that was trying to push me down so much. It it just, it came to a place where it it really took me out. It took me out physically and mentally, emotionally and spirit. It took me out in every single way. And it wasn't till after I decided I let it all go because it was, I started imagining doing, causing physical harm to people. I started imagining myself rather just living with my cats outside. I just, it, I wanted anything but what I was doing and started to imagine another life and I had to let it go. And I took several weeks off. It just so happened I was blessed and fortunate enough to leave the job without anything else. And my last day I happened to get a job offer. It just, happened that way. And I took several weeks off. And in that process of my own reflection, I realized how much I really wanted something that was some sort of level up, that you're leveling up, you're doing better in life, you're worth more. It meant all of that. What's interesting is I went to a role that was seemingly, it was less in position level in terms of the hierarchy. It was less in money. It was everything. But to your point, It was very much more aligned with what I was actually wanting to do. It really was. I wanted to help develop people. I wanted to help them grow. I didn't care so much about the other things that I was having to do. And it comes with a lot of sacrifice. And then there's just that struggle. And I just wanted to talk about that. It just hit me when you said that. It really did. And I just thank you for bringing that up. I do. I just want to thank you for making the space to have these conversations because I do think people, as they learn from others in their profession, have an idea of where they're supposed to be. And oftentimes life does not give you that easy path to make all that happen for you. And you have to pivot and you have to adjust. And I do think it really does come down to values and what you value and also the climate that you're in. The job climate that you're in, which we know can make or break it 
if the leadership is develop, modeling a culture that is oppressive or harassing or unsafe, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if that was your dream. Yeah. If yeah. you can't function in an environment that's toxic and then you're forced to sometimes have to lose and meet, like, lose that position and do something else. But I think it's important to really honor who you are and to know what is important for you at the time. I think in life, you have different needs at different times. It's like a developmental model, really, when you think about it in your life. And sometimes you need positions that are don't maybe provide the financial means that you were hoping, but it's going to give you peace of mind. It's going to be something that will work for you. Maybe you have a lot of caregiving duties during that time and that you have to take a second job just to support yourself, but it's just your mind is going to be in a better place versus taking on a position that's maybe like a executive director or assistant director where you have more space in your mind to be able to do that, more peace in your life because those responsibilities at home are lighter or you have more help. So there's just all these little nuanced kinds of things that can happen to you in your life. Or or you have yeah. to move. And that's happened to me a lot where I didn't anticipate moving a position. I had one position I loved and I had to leave it. I had the best working partner and I was so sad to leave it because I really enjoyed what I was doing. But change, you know, and I value my family. Having to move to Ohio when I didn't expect to do that, ultimately, looking back, was really helpful for me, particularly in the area of what we now call DEI work. And mm -hmm. because I started to understand different perspectives outside of California, different political perspectives, different ideas. And then I started meeting people that honestly just did not know. They really did not know. They, I was the first API person they ever met. When I remember when I used to teach at Ohio State, I taught this huge lecture hall and it was, a, it was the oppression class. And I remember my students, a couple came up to me at the end or during the class and they said, yeah, you were the first, like when we saw you talk, we were thrown back because you didn't have an accent. And they oh my gosh. were thrown away from that. And this was 20 years ago, but that could easily still be the, the case now yeah. in some places yes. in the U.S. And I had to start really thinking about those kinds of things. That really helped me develop as a person also with, you know, a CRT, critical race theory lens. Dominguez helped me with CRT to think of, okay, I see these things that happen in their family or I see this happen from their community, but connected to the systems connected. And that even now I'm always challenged by that when I'm thinking about a client or I'm thinking about a coworker or maybe something that someone says that didn't land on me. I think about, oh, but think about in a larger framework systemically, how it is that they, that might lead them to behave that way. And that help them, helps me to open up my mind a little bit more. Yeah. Yes. So while I, while you're talking, I'm like, I am so curious about zooming into you and your internal experience. I'm really curious about doing that. And I'm wondering if that's something that we can do because you're saying several significant things and we can't do all of the things, but you're saying so much stuff that feels 
like it would be fascinating to understand more deeply instead of talking more like externally about people. So I'm wondering how you would feel if I asked you questions to sink more into some stuff. Oh, I'm totally open. Okay. All right. I am wondering if there are any places where in your reflection, are there any places where you maybe didn't honor your values in the way that you really wanted to? Were there any of those places that you look back and you see, oh, crap, that's not what I want to be doing for myself? And are there any of those moments that you are willing to speak to? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely will. One that came to my mind, I know we had this early discussion around boundaries Mm -hmm. about honoring yourself and about self-care. And I definitely have to say that in the last place I was at and adding the stress of COVID on top of that, really my whole life felt like it just was spinning out of control in terms of the work, having to like already have a big job and that required administration and teaching at the same time, but then having to learn this whole new skill set of doing Zoom, Zoom class, I just felt like I was working to nth degree. It was endless weekends and nights. And I felt like my family really suffered for that. They were very great about it. They were patient about it. But I think they've seen me in higher ed for so long. They're used to, oh, yeah, you always have a class to prep. You always have a training to work on. You have students to place. And so all that just really blew up. And I think once there were some other changes that were made in the last year that I knew was not going to, there was just no way humanly I was going to be able to honor like the value of doing my job well, honoring that and be available for my family. I don't know how I could have corrected it because COVID just changed everything. I know I tried to be more skilled, I think, per se, and training on how to engage my students in a Zoom setting. But for someone who's a, an older, mature Gen Xer, it, it just was really challenging to do that. And yet, ultimately, I remember thinking about this, Charmaine, after I finished my last class last semester, that I don't think, looking back, I don't think my students really cared that much how good I was on Zoom. You know what I mean? I think if I leaned more into what I knew I was good at, I think that there was something that happened in my mind that said, don't be yourself anymore. They want this. The younger generations, they want this. They want more pizzazz in your slides. When it comes to find, like when I looked back to see how many people even watched the lectures, I spent hours on the weekend recording this lecture. Hardly anybody watched it. I should have looked back then in the middle of class. I can't forget. No one's watching this. Pay attention. Like that's a lesson learned. Okay. Yeah. I think what stopped me was the fear of looking yeah. and going, you know what? I spent all this time and nobody's watching. And Wait, hold on. Got to tell me about that fear. The f- just got to just tell me about that. I think in my mind, I was, I had an idea of what I thought it would mean to do this lecture well. I was trying to incorporate what people were telling me about students coming back into the Zoom environment, this hybrid Zoom in-person environment. And I thought that everything I had done before when I was doing things in person, like wouldn't work anymore. I have this way of 
interacting with my students and I present the material the old fashioned way with the slides. They're not always the most beautiful aesthetic looking slides, but I roll it out because I want to do the discussion while I'm lecturing. I gave that up in my last class for one of my, for my in-person class. And looking back, it was like, and I did these lectures thinking that they would watch them in their own time at midnight after they put their kids, right. they can listen to the material and then we can talk about it in class. And what yeah. I learned was when I asked, so what did you, like, what's coming up for you? What can we discuss? They didn't have much to say because they hadn't listened to it, you know? And I don't know why it didn't dawn on me to go, well, check and see if they looked to see if they watched it. And so I think if I could just do that over and just go back to trust that what has worked in the past, even though this is a different group of students impacted by COVID and Zoom. Go back to what was was okay, like what was effective before. And that's a lesson that I learned. There's others too. There was one, oh, Charmaine, and you were presenting at this conference, right? And I was in your workshop. And yeah, uh, something happened? Yeah, no, I made this pack. Okay, you had this workshop. You were talking about the importance of vulnerability. Yes. Right. In your organization, like how to help leaders be more vulnerable and develop more relationships with their staff. And I remember taking this away and going, you know what? My next class, I had something happen in the prior class that I wasn't very, I wasn't facilitating a discussion around some issues that students were having around a, a film that I was showing or video. And I said to myself, I need to redo that or check in with them about. And I didn't. I totally chickened out. And I totally avoided doing what you Oh my gosh. And, and I look back and I'm like, I lost that opportunity. And then I said to myself, Why'd oh, you chicken out? I that's a good question. That's a good one. I gotta think on that. I think maybe I was worried. I wouldn't like the very fear of not handling or debriefing that discussion came back to me. Maybe it'll happen again while I'm trying to oh. find out what I'm doing wrong. Mm. I won't be able to handle it. And maybe I think too, I think I was like worried I'd fall apart in class. Like I'd cry. Like I just, I couldn't be, and I'm getting emotional bad now, couldn't be that person. Yeah. Strong. That. Yeah. I could model, but I wanted them to see. Maybe this would have been okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I'm getting emotional too. I asked because there, I felt in you that you really wanted to do it. And then when you said you chickened out, I'm like, that's so interesting. Because I know you enough to know there was a deep desire to do it. So whatever the reason is pretty significant. And your reasoning is so normal. Like your reasoning is the exact reason why people in any leadership role, people have the privilege to be in leadership roles, don't do it. Like the, what you just lived out is exactly what happens for leaders. And a part of me wants to just hold you and be like, oh my gosh, I totally get it. This is so emotional. And then the other part, which is really hard to do right now, but the other part is, oh, this is also the moment to hold and say, 
to leaders and we also have the privilege to not do it. And like both of those things are true. It's a hard reality to hold both. I just honestly, like, I am very aware that we are recording this and I wasn't anticipating, I wasn't anticipating any of this to occur. I want to thank you for being this vulnerable and being this honest. People do not have to be this honest. They don't. I don't know anything else to say to offer you in this moment because it's just a real life moment. What are you thinking? What are you feeling right now? I'm really glad that we have this space to talk about this because I think supervisors and leaders feel like they have to have it all together. You know what I mean? Or, or give the illusion that they're a perfect leader. Yes. I remember when I took one to be a supervisor for clinicians, you have to take like a supervision class. And I did this 25 years ago, at least. I remember buying this book about how to be a good supervisor because, you know, we talk about imposter syndrome. I won't call it that back then, but I think that is so real. It's so real. And it's for some people, it's unconscious that they may not realize that's going on for them. And so they put on this kind of bravado about them. And yet when you ask someone who's under a supervisor, I think they don't expect that. They want someone to be a good supervisor, know how to teach them their job and like the mechanics of that. But in the end, I don't think they want someone that's inhuman. You know what I mean? I think they want a right. human who has flaws and mm-hmm. is able to come back to that, right? If you make a mistake and you mess up, be able to come back to that and say, hey, you know what? I messed up. Or can we talk about what happened? Exactly what you're modeling. And that is, yeah. let's go a little bit deeper if you're able to do that. I'm going to hold you, but I want to go back to what happened and unpack a little bit so that I can learn from that. And Mm -hmm. I think that's really important work to be doing because there's a lot of interactions that happen between supervisors and workers. And I don't mean to use workers in a a negative way, but just the positionality of it that goes unnoticed the humanity part of the work and supervising people. Yeah. Yes. So. Yes. Yes. You just thank you for all of it. You said earlier on when you were talking, the things that staff or students, things that people are really wanting. And there is a pressure that people with the privilege to lead have, which is to do it perfectly and not get it wrong. Like that is absolutely a thing and what I have been trying to coach and teach leaders is that isn't what staff and students that's not what is being looked for it isn't it is the I don't know everything I'm trying to do the things I'm open to hear how it can be improved so we can co-create this together and I think the fear about not knowing I don't know how it's going to go. Not having control over how it will go and the outcome can be really difficult for people. There's just, there is so much normal, normalized experience in what you're sharing. And I have to be honest too, even though I train and teach people this stuff, I have very difficult moments. I'm honestly recalling 
there was a whole, I put people into groups in a scenario in one group. I don't know what happened. One person left the room and I was really confused. I had no idea what happened and tried to assess the situation. And I just, I really felt, I have no idea. What, I really felt that I have no idea what's going to happen. Not even sure what to say, but I can't just sit here. A whole dialogue. I can't just sit here. If I sit here, then what does that say? Everyone else noticed it was a whole thing. So then I just got up and started walking over in the direction. Still, I had no idea what I was going to say. I was very nervous. I sat down and as honest as I could, I was really inquiring about what happened and being honest too. Like, I'm really not sure what to do in this situation. I have some wonderings. How can we get clarity so that we know what just happened? What is it that people are wanting in this situation? How can I help you get it? Once I'm in it, I think I can ask questions, but there is a reality of even someone who teaches people to do it. I have my own moments of, I would rather avoid this right now. <laughs> I really would rather avoid it. And I'm certain I have, I choose to avoid at times too. I'm not going to act like I speak on everything. When you were talking though, this is the one that just really lifted up because I did it and I had no idea what I was doing. It went fine. It didn't end with everybody feeling their best, but it ended with it was talked about and there's some idea of how everybody felt. And also because this is in a wider space, we also communicate things to people in larger spaces, even if they weren't involved because they are involved, they're in the space too. I felt very aware that if I didn't say something, I'm actually communicating another thing to everybody else that felt dangerous to me yeah 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 and what you just mm. said about when you don't communicate something right that's exactly what happened to me that's exactly what happened to me and then there was an interesting outcome to that and I look back at that now and I'm like see that's not what I wanted to have happen because of the power dynamic in my class because I'm the teacher right the people that wanted to talk about this issue, the thing that was making them upset about this film or this video, they decided to, or one decided to silence themselves for the rest of the class. And I'm thinking the outcome I really wanted. I look back at this and I really, again, appreciate the space because I was in a training once and I heard this expression about there's no expiration date when you can do a do-over. So even though that happened, like I can't go back to my class now, it's done, right? But I'm learning, be open to the learning and then think about, okay, if this happens again in a group setting and hopefully the next time I'll be more brave. Like I can always yeah. go back to something that didn't land well or I didn't facilitate well, at least acknowledge what happened the last time, right? So that people will go, okay, she realized it. Because otherwise, it creates a barrier. People are like, oh, I don't know if I can trust her. She's not a safe person for me because she didn't acknowledge the obvious elephant that's there, right? Yes, that is. And this is why I'm saying there's so much similarity in higher ed and in organizations. It's very much the same. And you're right. The things that we communicate when we don't say are pretty strong. It's the same thing that we tell 
okay, my mind's going in a lot of places. It's this parallel process because leaders and organizations will ask staff to do something with clients or customers that they are not willing to do with staff. It is the same thing that has people teaching students to do something with clients really struggle doing it themselves with students. It's the same. I appreciate you even referencing the segment I facilitated at that CRT convening because before I did it, I, do you know how nervous I was? I was very aware that I was walking into a space telling people who have been doing this for years and decades. I was coming into the space to say, hey, even though you've been doing this for a long time, you are missing this huge component. I was, I was so nervous. Even though I believe in it, I knew what I was walking into. And I appreciate hearing your own reflection from that experience because it at least helps me understand it makes sense to people. What you're saying, your whole example is a really great illustration of the importance of needing to develop leadership in any role capacity to be able to hold spaces. If we are unable to hold the space, then it's really hard to engage on a deeper level with students and with staff. It's really hard to do that. I appreciate you. Thank you, Charmaine. As you're speaking about this and I'm thinking about, I appreciate you sharing how you were nervous. Not that I would think that you wouldn't be nervous, but I think there's so much to be learned, right, across each other. Like I, I've never, ever considered myself an expert, like on CRT. It, it's this process of, I just, things unfold. Once I started to internalize some of the basic tenets and started to see these connections out in the world, it's an ever unfolding process. And I always look forward to hearing from people that are along that same journey or wherever they're at, because there's always something to be learned. I learned a great deal from your workshop. I do appreciate what you're saying. There's a, something else I wanted to just circle back to, because it honestly felt very tangible. I meant to do that, was in the going back. When we don't do things the way that we want, well, we might have missed the opportunity. I love the, the expiration date thing. There isn't one. And I see that two ways. Same thing that we tell staff with clients. Hey, you can always circle back. That's the thing. You can always circle back to. It's the same thing in our leadership roles. We didn't get it right. We can circle back. I actually have done that. And I've actually done that several times. Because I reflect and I realize, okay, it wasn't the best thing. So I will come back. And say, I've been doing some reflection and I realized this might not have landed well for people. Or I know this didn't land well for people. And I'd like to talk about that or give you an opportunity to share or discuss whatever makes sense. But the circling back feels super tangible. And then the second piece of that is in situations like yours where, okay, the class is over. You can't go back and do anything. You're not going to email everybody and say, sorry about that thing two years. You're not going to do that. There is an element of, to me, the circle back is the next time, is the moving forward with the lesson, is allowing that to impact behavior change. I know people know this in their minds, but there are inevitable moments where these things, they, sur they surface back. And because of 
all the stuff before and the added layer of now avoidance, I have also seen that people can crumble in those moments too. I've seen that. It is th that point of moving into action. Honestly, it's like, you just gotta do it. It just feels like that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I believe that too. It's like the only way you can move through that fear is by working through it, by, by doing it, doing the thing that you're afraid of doing. Because usually when you end up doing it, the worst thing that you thought was going to happen did not. And then it's that physiological piece about like exposure, response, prevention, ERP. We teach people if they are dealing with obsessive compulsive disorder, you face the thing you're really afraid of and graded steps, but your body habituates to that fear that it would be such this great fearful situation anymore. It just, it gets lower and lower. That fear does. And then it's not even a fear anymore. So I, I always keep that in the back of my mind when I'm thinking about things that I approach that I want to avoid. Yeah. And go, if I can just do this in the best way I can, showing up the best way possible, then I bet you will still help me in the end. Absolutely. I have another, this is probably my last question. I was thinking it would be really cool to reflect on, because there's a part, the very, very small part of this conversation that we're having, which was a window into how I would work with people, which is the pausing the zooming in and then the sinking into a situation would it be okay if I asked you what that felt like because I, I can always tell people what the work is like with us like, I can always do that but I'm like it's not a training it's not me sharing information it's very experiential so would you allow me to ask this question? Would you be open to answering what that specific process of zooming in and sinking into the moment was like for you? And if you felt like maybe the learning was a bit different? Sure. Yeah. Wasn't that scary to do that? You know why? Because it was you. It was you. Like you are so thoughtful and you are so reflective and you hear people well, at least my experience of you is that you have this ability to take in what people are saying and you quickly make these connections and then you're able to reflect it back to someone in a way that helps. Like you really do facilitate that so well. So you inviting me, it just feels like I, I, I don't even have any hesitation to do that. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And it, for me, it was actually very cathartic because it's something that was on my mind, you know what I mean? And it never really resolved itself. And I haven't really had a chance to really talk it out to someone who really was interested in knowing about deep diving into something that is painful to reflect on. So you've set it up so nicely that it, it didn't feel at all that hard. And if anything, it just helped me feel really glad that I did and that it's important work to do. And that we can't also do it our, ourselves alone. So like I've been keeping a journal, which by the way, I'm not a big journal writer because it just takes more time out of my day. But I have been doing just 
with a little excerpt here and there about how I'm feeling as I'm making these transitions because I don't want these negative distortions to always be the loudest voice in my head. I have to write down moments of victory, moments of challenging that, those negative thoughts, and that helps. And you no, know, it felt really good. And I think the point I wanted to make was that to have a partner to do that with or to have a trusted friend or colleague to do that with, um, I think is a very good practice. I actually, I think I lied because one of the things that you and I talked about when we were setting this up that I do feel like I would regret not bringing up was how your experience is driven by who you are as an Asian American woman. What did you say? You said Asian American. And I don't want to speak to what that was for you. But I think the question would be, what about that part of your identity has influenced these different experiences that we're actually talking about? Especially the ones where, because I remember you were tying it to how you said it impacts how you advocate for yourself or even for other people. It, it impacts what you might say and not say. Yeah. So do you want to share anything on that? Sure. Thank you for bringing up that question again. So much of my decisions in life in work and in play is very much related to my being Asian American, being Chinese American, being third generation and sixth generation, and also being female. Those two things, gender and ethnicity, race for me is really noticeable and impactful. And I remember on one hand, when I'm thinking about today's conversation, I think a lot about the model minority myth and being raised in that and what it's done for me to amp up this sort of feeling like you have to be perfect. You have to never fail. You have to be exceptional at what you do. You have to be, you have to work really hard over time. That all just plays into that. And then the piece about advocacy is for me, and I know it's different for different Asian Americans for sure, but it's working through what I call the back door that I think the avenue for me where I feel most comfortable about change is really working that back door, working through relationships and being more subtle about how to influence or advocate for someone. Now, it doesn't mean I don't know how to speak directly when I'm like advocating for, I have an easier time, for instance, advocating for a client you know what I mean? Directly for someone than say myself. That I think goes to the wanting to do the job right kind of thing. <laughs> but certainly that plays a part in it. And just, I think if, especially if you are working with Asian Americans in a work setting, it is really easy. And now I'm just reflecting about my experiences as an Asian American woman in group settings. It is very easy for us to feel, or for me to feel like unnoticed and forgot. And unless someone reaches out and says, hey, Sharon, what do you think about that? I may not say anything at all, like in a group setting, unless it's something I'm really passionate about, or it really it ignites something, or someone says something that I think is really an error, or that I'll say something. But I've been in situations, Charmaine, where, and I started taking note of this more in the last five years, where I'll, people just don't even think I'm there. It's as if I was invisible. So I'm much more cognizant of that 
And I think it's so important to help people that feel invisible and that have been marginalized in that way to make sure to make room for them, make space for them, make sure to check in on them when they're in group settings or in meetings or do the backdoor method after the meeting, check in with them to find out what they thought about that meeting. Because I remember in grad school, people saying, you all, the meaning the Asian Americans that were in a group together, you're also quiet in class, but then you get out of class and you're like jabbering away, right? And you never know what to say to that. It's like, well, we do, we have a lot of thoughts and feelings about what's being said, but because of model minority myth, because of also how we're socialized to behave, maybe in particular ways, don't stand out, don't make waves. That's I'm thinking like Chinese culture. My mom was very much about don't stand out. And like, she would never ask for a raise. She wouldn't. And then she was always thankful when someone else in the office asked for the raise and they were doing the same job. And then she would benefit from it. You keep, keep your head down. You do your work. Don't say anything. You don't create problems. You do, you'd be the best you can be. You work overtime if you need to. That's just what it means to be a good worker, a good professional. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Oh, you're, oh, you're saying so much stuff. I, there's two things that you've actually mentioned in this time with us today that I am thinking these need to be separate episodes. One was the, the negative narrative. I think there are very common negative narratives in people in leadership roles. And then this other one that you're really lifting up is, and you're honest, you're making me think about me. And I know that I'm not the only one. When we have these experiences from our culture's identities that are historically marginalized, historically oppressed, and then there, there is the intersection of having positions of privilege that require us to wrestle with that. If we're doing the work, it requires us to wrestle with it. It requires us to wrestle with it. If I have to do, I cannot tell you, I, the more I do this work, the more I have to acknowledge my internalized oppression and what it looks like because of my identities cultures I, I, it is all the time when you were saying what you were saying I'm like oh my gosh this makes sense and then I was thinking about some of the stuff that you were sharing with your experiences just today in what that looks like maybe not saying something that extra layer of who you are and there's that point where we have these experiences and then we have these privileged positions so what does that mean and what does it look like that's a whole other episode and I would really love to have that with you and maybe a couple other people. But you've got my mind going and you're saying so much really great, impactful information. And all of those need to be unpacked themselves. Thank you. Thank you, Charmaine, for this opportunity. Yes. Yes. I don't know about you. This felt like an episode, but it also felt like we were just really going wherever there were moments of my own reflection you gave me some things to think about one of the things to think about is I really would love to be the person that journals all the nice things I don't journal the nice things I journal the I can't stand today things that's what I do you put this on my plate of you could benefit from some good gratefulness stuff thank you for that actually thank you Anything else we want to say before we wrap up? 
I, there's so much that I just love the richness of these conversations. And I appreciate just, again, your ability to track what I'm saying and be able to bring these points back and say, hey, let's talk about this a little bit because my mind is going in so many different directions. And I just think you're so skilled at this. And I think you're in the perfect place to be doing this kind of work. So I just want to affirm you for all that you're doing, because this is really meaningful and impactful and important. I feel seen. I think you have a gift in really helping people to feel seen in their uniqueness, as well as in whatever space they're in or whatever place they're in at that time. I certainly didn't plan to be as vulnerable, but I think I really, I just, you made it really comfortable and like you validated the importance of the work. And so I just couldn't resist you. You just, you're completely irresistible. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Thank you. That, that means a lot. It really does. And it's validating and confirming, especially as someone who has chosen a different path. And this is another long story that I won't even tell maybe another day. I just really wanted to do this work and I was really trying to fit into what it looks like. And I was denied heavily trying to fit into what this work looks like. Then I decided I care enough to try it differently. And now I'm just doing my thing in this area. I, what you're saying is very important to me. I really appreciate your kind words. I need to hear them. I need to receive them. And I thank you for, I know you said I can't resist you. To be honest, though, not everybody is able to come into a space like this. We're recording and to allow it to be what it is. I really thank you for that. When we were in the moment, I said, well, we're here. We're here. We are here. (laughs) This is what it looks like. Yeah, I wasn't anticipating what today was. And I love that. So thank you. All right. Today was a really cool day. I I really hope that people listening got a chance to see like what it really looks like to have an open dialogue and go in the directions that it needs to go and what it can also look like to capture really significant moments for people that we are with to pay more attention to them and to hold them and to zoom in and to be curious and learn how to ask questions and be honest about the things that maybe we didn't do so well and reflect the process of reflection, just how important that is and how much that can impact what we're able to learn about ourselves and and how we can change our behaviors and make the change to systems that we really want to make. So again, I thank you, Sharon, for being here with me. If people want to get in contact with you, what is the best way to do that? I would say my email address, I'm on LinkedIn and under Sharon Chun Wetterow and then my email address at Dominguez. It's S-Wetterow, S-W-E-T-T-E-R-A-U at C-S-U-D-H dot E-D-U. That's another way to find me too. Perfect. I will also include that in the description if people want to see it. You can visit me on my website at livingunapologetically.com to connect with me. The, my social media handles are there. You can always send an email. There are free tools available to you to help you deepen your practice, help you deepen your ability to be in relationships with each other. 
So come back if you also want to see more episodes. On my website, you will have access to my book, Bias Conscious Leadership, a framework for leading with action and accountability. Uh, that's it for now. So thanks for listening. And I hope to connect soon. Until next time. Bye. 